Hi, it's Victoria Stapleton from the Little Brown School and Library podcast. Thanks for being with us today. If you like our show, please do check out Fully Booked with Kirkus Reviews on the Podcast One Network. It's a weekly look at all things book, co-hosted by Kirkus Review Editor-in-Chief Clay Smith and staff writer Megan Labrice. Fully Booked features interviews with the authors you love and book recommendations from Kirkus Fiction, Nonfiction, YA, and Children's Editors. That's Fully Booked with new episodes every Tuesday on Podcast One, podcastone.com, and Apple Podcasts. Please remember to rate and review. Thanks for being with us today. Enjoy the show. Hi, everyone. My name is Michelle Campbell, and I'm the Senior Manager of the School and Library Marketing Department here at Little Brown Books for Young Readers. Today, I am chatting with Stuart Foster. You may know him from his previous works, including Bubble. His new book, All the Things That Could Go Wrong, is about an unlikely friendship between a bully, Dan, and his victim, Alex, who has OCD. Welcome, Stuart. So let's go ahead and begin. So the first question we have for you today is, having previously written Bubble, also about emotional intelligence and mental illness, what has inspired you to return to these topics and all the things that could go wrong? Okay, um, I think it is more about the fact that um, I had an idea of what I wanted to write and then the emotional and the mental illness kind of came with it as part. So if you like, what I wanted to do was write about OCD in particular because I wanted people to realize that it's a very bad thing that um, affects people and uh, keeps them in their houses and it's not just about... Uh, keeping light switches up and off and on or having things in the right order or just cleaning. It's about really bad thoughts that stop people going out. And that was the main thing I wanted to do. And I wanted to find a vehicle to do that. And that was an experience that I had at school about bullying that I suddenly thought, actually, what if we could marry these two together and tell a story that would uh, be enthralling enough that people would want to read it but at the same time get a message from it. That's fantastic. Thank you for writing it. Our next question is, all the things that could go wrong is about two classmate enemies who are thrown together to work on a project over a school break. We meet Alex first, the victim with OCD, and Dan second, one of Alex's main bullies. With the story being told from alternating perspectives, can you talk a little bit about why you chose to write the story from both perspectives and what you were hoping to accomplish with this choice. Yeah, it's one of those, it, it actually immediately came to me that I like the idea of seeing a bad situation from both perspectives and that if I only did it from one, then we would kind of uh, only have emotion and empathy for that person as opposed to seeing it from the other person's point of view. And I guess the alternative was to have told it third person, but I really wanted to get into the boy's head so that you could actually feel what they were feeling and feel like the intensity of the whole situation. So that's why I kind of did it. And the whole idea of dovetailing the two stories and therefore the narrative progressing with both of them, that you wouldn't actually do the same day in the same uh, boy's voice, it would actually switch the other. It was a drive in the narrative that I wanted to get across. And... What actually happened was I went into a school visit and I was talking about bullying in a school visit and one of the teachers that up to the class and just said, Stuart's thinking of writing a book from the bully's perspective as well. And it was kind of like a, I don't say there was a gasp, but there was a reaction in the room that kind of thought, wow, that's kind of hadn't been done before. So we'd always had it from the person being bullied's perspective and all of a sudden it sort of like opened a new world for me in that 
Julian and find out his reasons for doing what he's doing, then I'm not only identifying the problem, but I might be going some way to solving it. It was so fascinating to hear from both of their perspectives. And just as a reader, felt like I wanted to not like Dan for so long. Yeah. <laughs> and then <laughs> I came away, you know, having a better understanding of why he was the bully. When I was writing, I, I had exactly the same problem as you, uh, in that um, I didn't like Dan. And it was very hard when I was getting him to do things, and I was kind of thinking, uh, I don't want to write this because it's too disturbing. And then I was thinking, well, that's the point. If we water this down, nobody's going to believe it. So um, I, too, had, I had that problem where I didn't like him. And then as the story warms up, I, I really warmed to him. And mm-hmm. all the way through the book, I was trying to think, who do I like, if you like, from my perspective, who do I like being the most, Alex or Dan? And I was flipping all the way through between the two uh, as to who I like writing at any given time. And now it's the flip of a coin as to which one I prefer, but, um, which I think is a good thing. Yes, definitely. That leaves us, or brings us to our next question. Um, as we get to know Alex yeah. and Dan separately, we see their differences diminish and their similarities start bringing them together. How did you maintain the tension while also bringing two sworn enemies together? That's probably your most difficult question that you've got here. <laughs> um, I would say what it was, was I needed independently for them. So they had their own voices. I needed their own stories as well as the one of the two of them together. So in a way, it was, it's almost like having two separate books. So I could have written Alex and I could have written Dan and they would have told their own stories and perhaps on their own they would have stood up as well. And it was really just a case of the tension was, I have a sort of mantra, if you like, when I'm writing and it's uh, to always keep going forward. And whenever I'm writing a line, I think it go forward with the plot, go forward rather than hang around and uh, give too much detail. And I think sometimes the fact there is a lack of detail is actually what drives the momentum on because you're wasted to know what happens next in the same way that actually perhaps I didn't know what was going to happen next because I was, I was quite gripped by it as I was doing it. So I think it was better by the fact that it was total present tense as well that I maintained the sort of tension in that manner. And from the point of view of bringing the two together, uh, which is, I know it's a massive spoiler alert by saying that, but um, I kind of always thought they would. I just didn't know how. And once I had an idea of how, it was really just a case of driving to that point and uh, without making it feel contrived. So that's really how the tension was maintained, which is perhaps by me knowing not exactly what was going to happen either. I'm not going to guess that from the text. <laughs> <laughs> and you do such a good job. The, the book opens with Alex's worry list, um, and they're throughout, yeah. and being inside his head and reading all of his worry lists and the things that he just yeah. is constantly worried about, people dying and germs, and just, he has it, so much. Real, it's, 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 it's a real, um, what actually happened was during the writing of it, and uh, we may come on to it later, but um, my best friend uh, has very bad OCD, and we had a rule while we were writing this that um, I could have the OCD, but I couldn't have his character, so therefore it wasn't about him, it was about the OCD. And at one point, I had this worry list, and I said, did you ever do worry lists? I said, I've got them for somewhere. And he said, yeah, you know, a psychotherapist had told him to use them. And then my daughter, between the ages of uh, 13 to about 17, had very, very bad OCD, exactly the same as my friend. And all of a sudden, she said, Dad, I used to worry list all the time and I never knew what was on the list it was just for her own sort of cathartic uh, reasons but uh, I then suddenly thought let's have a worry list and I do know a number of readers that find it quite uncomfortable reading Alex's worry list because obviously they're very intense they're very repetitive but in all 
order to portray him correctly and the nature of OCD it had to have that kind of uh, repetitive intention to it otherwise it just wouldn't have worked there, is, there are things there that um, there are things I wish were in there but because of the age of the, the reader um, I couldn't go or prospective readers I couldn't perhaps do put some of the things I wanted in there that I, uh, which I know older people you know, in their teens and older uh, the type of thoughts they would have but we had to reach a point where actually I want the readers to know how bad it is but we don't need to know you know even worse things that could happen so right. uh, it was a kind of a, an edit that I had to do at the time. Did you do any other research along the way about OCD? You said you have like some personal experience but did you talk with any professionals? Uh, yeah it was um, all of my experience with OCD was uh, my friend has it so bad that I didn't need to do anything else uh, having said that I did have the backup of the daughter and what I find was that um you may know, you know, we had this children, you know, my own children and, and other, uh, other people, their parents and their children, we had the same way we kind of think our children are attention-seeking and you dismiss things as, uh, as being that tantrums and such like as attention-seeking. And my daughter was going through such a bad phase with her OCD where it was continual washing, uh, wearing socks in the shower, uh, not touching my telephone for fear of where it had been, not touching my hands if they'd been on the steering wheel. And I thought all of that was attention-seeking. And then I met what is now my best friend, and he had things that were so similar that there's no way you can make that up. It's actually a real condition, and it's not attention-seeking at all. Uh, from the point of view of how close I got with the OCD, uh, whilst I was writing Bubble, uh, my friend and I, uh, well, I rented a cottage, and he edited uh, Bubble with me as we went through it. And that was for about a three or four month period. And by the end of that period, his OCD had sort of transmitted to me to the point that I was washing my hands 30 times a day. Uh, I was worrying like Alex does. So in that respect, and it's a known condition as well. It is a transferable uh, condition, um, if only sort of momentarily. But um, yeah, I think when you have a friend who struggles so much and you can see the pain on their faces, then um, I think that was research enough. I also think it was uh, reason enough to write the book. This has been fascinating. I've learned so much. Can you talk a little bit more about your writing process? I kind of sit down and I just write and it comes out. And afterwards you realize, if you want to pick it, you realize I have done what a lot of other uh, authors do, but I kind of didn't know I was doing it. And uh, I mean, from the structure uh, kind of view, and it's just, uh, I tend not to get hung up on the nuances of writing. I just tend to write it. And then if people then appreciate it, then it's great. I literally just read on Twitter this morning, somebody had, uh, had their book rejected and it came back and she said, uh, I've just been told for the upcoming time, uh, uh, something like uh, incredible writing, uh, brilliantly uh, written in a style, but you lose the plot halfway through. And then you had a lot of people backing her up saying, oh, you're a brilliant writer, you're a brilliant writer. And unfortunately, what happens with Twitter, if you do raise your head sometimes, you get shouted down. But I kept looking at it and I kept thinking, it's about the story. You have to have the story. And if it's not there, then it doesn't matter how pretty the writing is, people right. aren't going to read it. And uh, that's what I tend to do is I have a situation where um, I often say to people, people say to me, when I was at university, for example, they said, oh, do you think you're the best writer? And at one point I said, yes. And of course, they all kind of like, oh, you're such a big head, such a big <laughs> And I said, actually, that's not what I meant. I said, I'm the best storyteller. And that's what it comes down to. I'm not the best writer, but I do tell stories quite well. So that's what the strength is. So. I just can't help but wonder which character do you identify with most? 
partially deaf. Have you ever considered writing a main character who is also deaf? In the next book, in the, I was going to make him deaf. Um, or not, and the reason I didn't is because uh, I have an adult book called Bruce the Kings, uh, which came out in the States, I think. Uh, and that was about mental health. And it was very insular, um, very disturbing to tell you the truth. Uh, Bubble was about mental health and very insular because he couldn't go outside. And then I had these two, Alex and Dan, and obviously I was in their heads a lot as well. And I was just really wanting something to open myself up a little bit, because if I went into my own world of the deafness, it's going to be even more insular than what I've already done already. And I think at some point I will do it, because um, it does come out in my writing, believe it or not. And it's because, certainly the first couple of books, and, uh, and in this one, you notice people's actions more than what they say. And I've often had it in the books where somebody says, uh, if you watch a film or read a book, nobody ever says pardon or uh, can you say that again because we can't repeat the line in the book. And whereas I do, I do have instances where he says, she says something I can't hear. And yeah, so I think I, I will do it at some point. But um, it's interesting how it does come across in my writing. Uh, when you talk about your friend with, uh, with her deafness, there's things that deaf people do that um, we just do them without actually analysing what they are. And, and it is things like, uh, actually, this is a, my first girlfriend. My parents lived in a cul-de-sac. And if we, so she would come to meet me at the house and then we would go for a walk. And, you know, I don't know if it's the same for stage, but the man should always walk on the outside of the girl when you're on the road out of uh, politeness and yeah. Uh, yeah it is yeah so we're going around so imagine going around the cul-de-sac and I was always on the right hand side or the left hand side of uh, my girlfriend and I went back in after uh, I don't know an hour or so we've been outside chatting and my parents had been watching us and then my dad looked at us he said because you're so rude he said uh, you've walked on the out, uh, inside of her all the time all the way around and I realised it's because my deaf ear was <laughs> would have been sure oh. if I'd gone on the outside so that's why I was walking on the side all the time. That's a, that's, that's a bit random, but there's other stuff as well. That, um, yeah, things like lip reading that you don't realise you do. Yeah. But, you know, I do it a lot. But my, my hearing is to the point that I'm absolutely fine. If you were in the room with me, I could hear you absolutely fine. Uh, mm-hmm. If I do school environment and it's questions from the audience, um, I struggle and then I wear a hearing aid for that. But, um, and I was supposed to be, the whole idea was before I started writing was um, that I was going to teach, uh, but I recognised that I couldn't hear the kids properly. So, uh, and at the same time, I was writing a book and the book got taken so that my choice is made for me. So uh, that's kind of uh, a children's loss over here, but I don't think it really was a loss to be honest. Yeah. So. <laughs> 
Definitely. And what kind of advice do you want to share with teachers and librarians and people who are working with young people all the time when they're confronted with a bully in the classroom or even outside of the classroom? I'd say there's a tagline, actually. I'm not sure if you have it there, but we certainly have it on the, the bookmarks that we have for all the things over here. And it says that there are two sides to every story. And that uh, is probably the biggest thing I would get across is that, um, that there are two sides to every story, which is why I did it in that manner, because you could hear both sides. It's also an, what I think is kind of an alternative approach to the bully is that um, over here, and I'm not sure if it's the same as uh, schools over there, but um, you have this thing where it's the onus is on the person being bullied to go to a teacher and ask for help or to uh, go to their mum and dad to ask for help or phone a helpline ask for help. And I just feel that if there was a bit more out there that was less passive and actually it was aimed at the bully and it was a case of saying, if you are a bully uh, and you're struggling with problems, make it known that a teacher will, it's not like a, an amnesty as such, but you know that kind of thing, the freedom where a child can walk up to a teacher and say, actually, I'm really sorry, but I have been bullying. And then the teacher will ask, can you think of why? And then they have a conversation as to why that might be happening. And the reason I say that is it's happened in a couple of schools over here where I, I've given talks, uh, more, more than a couple of schools actually, I've given talks. And at the end or during the course of a talk, I may have been aware of where sort of like, if you like, problem children are, but the ones that are, are causing a problem. And I've had a couple of instances where hands have gone up and you can see the kind of like the hurt in the person's face. Uh, and then they would just simply say something like, um, what if the bully is scared of the consequences of uh, admitting that he's a bully? And in that instance that I was asked, I asked the child whether, um, or student rather, whether uh, he was, was he talking about the consequences of teachers or was he talking about consequences in his peer group? And he met both. And you realise that the pressure that children are under, that if they are in a group of bullies, to actually try to extricate themselves from that is really hard. And they've got to be really brave to do it. And I would just love it if, Somewhere along the line, you know, teachers, librarians, if they're confronted with the issue, that they can kind of just kind of like probe a little bit and find out the reasons why and just make the student feel comfortable enough to be able to talk about it without immediate, you know, repercussions. So obviously, we're not going to say, yes, it's a good thing to be doing, but they need to know there's a way out. And uh, that's the biggest message I can get across. I find it exasperating, to be honest. It's one of those, uh, you only have to go on uh, any of the helplines or any of the websites for, for uh, anti-bullying. And it is, it's all aimed at the victim. Yeah. And don't get me wrong, obviously we, we have to focus on that, but yeah. I think actually it's far more constructive way of dealing with it is to actually stop the problem as opposed to trying to deal with it, the consequence of it. So that's why I advocate that we try to sort of target the bullies. Instead of having, are you being bullied written up, saying, are you a bully? And because as I hope you've shown in the book, bullies have conscience. And I think, you know, underneath they have their reasons for doing what they're doing. And we just have to pick through the layers in order to establish that. And, uh, you know, like I said, it's, it's not an amnesty saying, great, you, you know, you're forgiven for everything you've done. But if there's this kind of, uh, if you like, repatriation with their, you know, victim at the end of it, where it's just kind of go, actually, yeah, I'm sorry. And we move on from that. Yes, I hope that's, a direction that we can all move in. Um, just wondering if you're working on anything next after all the things that could go wrong. Do you have another project that you would like to talk about? Uh, yep, yeah, I'm here and I should be editing right now. <laughs> I've uh, broken my arm and I can't edit because of it. Um, <laughs> so, okay. uh, I've had my bike, that's all. Um, yeah, I have, 
I've actually finished a story about a boy who's um, struggling. Uh, he's struggling at school as a result of the death of his grandma, and uh, his behaviour isn't great at school, and his attention is terrible, and his granddad steps in and thinks that the way the solution is to try to teach him how to play chess, and uh, it's kind of a it is a granddad the grandson relationship, which um, I always think is quite a special one if you uh, if you think back to your uh, grandparents. I, I kind of I love exploring that and how the generations, you know, the older generation might be a little bit more closed emotionally than the younger generation, and it's trying to unpick those layers of uh, emotions and so that the two can connect. And uh, I love it, and I just want to finish it because uh, it, you know, as you're going through an edit, you see all these marks from editors where they um, they highlight obviously the things that you need to improve. And what happens with me with an edit is I I delete all the praise. So where it says, oh, I love this bit, I love this bit, I delete that immediately so that it takes the oh, edit down but of course you're left you're left with the hard bits and uh, then you need to remind yourself that your editor does actually like the book so uh, that's what i'm up to at the moment and i've also got another story which um is a story about a boy who loses his iguana down a drain and he goes on a search looking for it and uh, that one's slightly different angle to anything i've tried before but it's probably uh, so i've had a lot of fun writing it so it was kind of like me with the shackles off and just having a good run at something a little bit more um, comedy. That sounds wonderful. I hope we get a chance to read that in the U.S. Well, thank you so much for joining us today, Stuart. Um, and for all the listeners, his book, All the Things That Could Go Wrong, will be on sale on September 4th in the U.S. So please go out and read it. Get a copy for your library and your school um, and to share in all the book clubs that you're in. Thanks so much. Hi everyone, Victoria Stapleton back again. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Little Brown School and Library Podcast. We also hope you check out Fully Booked with Kirkus Reviews on the Podcast One Network. Again, it's a weekly look at all things book, co-hosted by Kirkus Editor-in-Chief Clay Smith and staff writer Megan Labris. Fully Booked features interviews with all these authors that you love and recommendations with Kirkus's editors. That's Fully Booked with new episodes every Tuesday on Podcast One, PodcastOne.com, and Apple Podcasts. And remember to rate and review. It really does help a lot. We'll see you next time. Bye.